This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Tired of your tattered old climbing pack? It's time you met the zealot from Osprey. Osprey was born at the foot of the Sierras and came of age in the ranges, deserts, and canyons around Cortez, Colorado. And ever since, they've been elevating adventure through innovative pack design along the way. When it comes to climbing, their Zealot series is purpose-built and athlete-tested with ballistic nylon to defy years of dirt bagging. Their Zealot 40 is a proper crag bag, made with the same attention to detail and carrying comfort that Osprey is known for. And their Zealot 30 is made for your days that take you from work to the gym, using dual compartments to keep your everyday carrying and climbing gear separate. The Zealot is available online at osprey.com or at your local retailer. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days, they make unquestionably the most high-quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode four of season five, Keeping the Zine Alive. If it sounds like I'm a little stuffed up, um, it is because I am from allergies right now, getting crushed. It always happens um, this time of year, and uh, yeah, definitely makes summer less enjoyable. But that's not why I'm here on the mic. Just want to explain myself why I sound a little stuffed up. This is an episode that I did with Andrew Bisharat and Chris Kalous on their podcast called The Runout. I'm sure if you're listening to this one, you're familiar with those guys. Uh, Chris also has the podcast called The Enorma Cast, which we get into here. was a huge boost for the zine early on, and uh, I'll always be grateful for Chris for that. A big part of this conversation is kind of my crusade with the climbing zine to keep it going. You know, I have the podcast, uh, we have a website, there's so many elements of the business, the clothing line, but keeping the zine alive in print is is beyond the business goal for me. It's something that I feel like I owe the community and it's something I want to keep alive, not because it's an important part of my business, even though it is. It's just this tangible thing I want to keep alive for all of you. And that's what a lot of this conversation is about. I hope you enjoy it. I could have had this conversation with these two for hours and hours. Um, And hopefully Andrew and I are going to link up and do something here shortly as well. But my message here is kind of the message I've had for the last few episodes. If you love this podcast and you love the zine, consider subscribing to the Climbing Zine or joining our Patreon um, for the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. The Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. 
There are over 66,000 problems in the original kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right, let's get into this conversation with the fellows from The Runout thought maybe we could start with your uh just getting into what you've been up to for the last couple of months or however long you were down in Mexico you did sort of a residency down there um and you got pretty industrial so uh what was going on down in Mexico yeah so I went to Mexico um in December and um uh, for like two weeks and then came back to Colorado and realized I don't know what I'm doing in Colorado in the winters anymore you know like I've never been a winter sports person and definitely get the seasonal affective disorder, which I think everyone does to some extent. But, um, so I decided to go back to Mexico for like a month and just try to see if that would be a place I'd like to live in the winter and stuff. And I really liked it and yeah, um, fell in love with the lady there, which is a whole nother side story, but I let my passport expire which you used to be able to do that and just come right back. But um, as of last year, they passed a law that you can't return to the United States with an expired passport and you have to renew it at a consulate. So I had to renew it at the consulate in Monterey and it took like two weeks just to get in there to get an appointment. And it's like getting super hot in Potrero. You know, it's like, it's, it's lovely there, but when it starts to get like 90 degrees, you're like, (laughs) you start to become irritable and you're like, I'm not enjoying this, but I don't know why, you know, (laughs) like, um, and so, uh, luckily it only took them about two weeks to pass, um, uh, to, uh, process my passport and everything. And, um, so I was able to get back, but it was kind of like one of those experiences like, wow, I just like literally can't go back home right now. And it was kind of just an interesting experience. Um, and I'd never been to a consulate as well, like a United States consulate. So that was kind of an interesting experience as well. So did they give you the Royal treatment? They did. Yeah. So I got there, I didn't know what to expect. And there's like a thousand Mexicans waiting in line. Um, just to get their tourist visas so they can visit the United States. Uh, they they did. They like, oh, you're a gringo, whatever, like go to the front of line. And, and they were, um, yeah, super, super helpful way, like way nice. Uh, the government employees there at the consulate were super nice. So You were generally new routing uh, quite a bit down there as well, it looked like. One new route that took me two months. Yeah, I will never put up like a cactus removal vegetated route ever again in Mexico. Um, yeah, it took me two months to clean and it was like in this super busy popular area in Virgin Canyon. So if I wanted to trundle, I had to like get to, I like was recruiting all these youngsters to like do trundle lookout for me at like 7am. And, uh, 
so I had to do all the trundling at super early in the morning and then just kept being like more and more and more cleaning. Cause you want it to be hundred percent perfect. And it was like a 35 meter route, but so I wasn't doing that much new rooting. I put up one five ten. <laughs> they took oh. me two months. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious because I just was like, oh man, they're putting up some big ass root, like multi pitch, gigantic thing. Just I mean, just watching your social media. Um, yeah, but that's classic. It was just. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I did out? it. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think it turned out good. Yeah, people can okay. let me know on Mountain Project, but um, oh, they will. <laughs> I, I did a lot of uh, uh, rebolting as well while I was there. Oh, so, right, okay. Yeah, that's that probably kinda, more what I was seeing. Uh, then, yeah, yeah, just yeah, and that's pretty uh, pretty effective. So you getting um, bolts from from somewhere, or are they coming out of your pocket? Uh, from Aska, yeah, yeah. Okay, Aska cool. provided everything, and Aska provides most of the bolts for bolt replacement in Potrero, which is pretty awesome that they've stepped up. Because um, I think other American climbing organizations could step up more there because we're the one of the main users, you know. Um, and the infrastructure of like climbers coalitions in Mexico. There's one. Um, I'm gonna. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's based out of Monterey, and they've been doing some awesome bolt replacement and other work in Huasteca and stuff. Um, but I, from my experience, what I saw, uh, most of the bolts that are, um, for bolt replacement are coming from Aska, which is kind of tough cause you got to either drive or fly down there. And yeah, so I, I flew down with a bunch of gear and, and basically like placed, you know, just about everything that I brought down. So I have to bring another stash, uh, when I go back down there next year. So Aska and ye shall receive. Yeah. <laughs> be their new motto. <laughs> Love asking man there. Yeah. They're, they're, in a, they're a great group bare bones too. Um, so we l often lament on this show about the death of print media, but um, print's not dead because uh, the climbing zine is here and that has been your project for, I'm not sure how long, but um, you find yourself in kind of an unusual space of being the unlikely last man standing in, in uh, the print media world. Well, we always, we always like completely dismiss the alpinist for some reason. I know, but they don't count. <laughs> why not? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody reads it. That's why. Um, and it's easier to just say that all the magazines are gone, even though that's yeah, not true. That's a, that is easier. But yeah. then we're always like, but there's still Luke. And then, you know, the alpinist is like, hey, uh, we still put out a magazine. <laughs> and so does Gripped in uh, Canada. Gripped yeah. still, I think, puts out a, a print copy, don't they? I'm not sure. I think so. I, don't know. I think yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. Well, no one's sure. <laughs> well, you know, you, you even just buying a magazine out in the real world, real real world is a, you know, it's not what it used to be. It has become this kind of niche artistic space, and which is yeah, kind of fascinating. I didn't think it would kind of go that direction, but um, tell us about you know, kind of what I guess. What's your take on the media landscape and climbing right now? How do you see the climbing zine being? either thriving or, you know, limping along. Um, you know, just give us your broad picture view of, of uh, the print world and the climbing media world. Yeah, that's, it's such a big question too. Cause it's like, it, I almost try to like, I like to look back at things in increments, you know, cause when I started, it was a stapled together black and white, like punk rock style zines. So I started doing zines in like 2007. Um, and I did a couple zines before I did the climbing zine. But as far as like the media landscape, so, I mean, I joke with Calouse that he, you know, there's this era that most people found out about the climbing zine through the Enormacast for 
when I would ask about where people would find out about it, it would for like years um, after I first appeared on the Enorma cast, which was probably that was probably about ten years ago now, right? That I appeared mm-hmm. on the Enorma cast, um, and so it was just like it, I was kind of doing this underground thing that I, people have always like respected and liked it, you know. Like um, even when you know I, I look back at some of the old stuff, and it's just like almost embarrassing to look at of how bad it was and how long it took us um, to get it going. But uh, you look back like 10 years. And so I'm there, there's rock and ice, there's climbing, there's the alpinist, there's maybe even urban climber <laughs> magazine, gym climber. Uh, gym climber. Yeah. And so I just try to like look back 10 years and be like, all right, there was like a couple podcasts and I was one of, you know, I was like almost kind of competing with the other magazines and, I think I was able to kind of slide in because I had like super affordable uh, rates for advertisements and stuff like that. And um, I had my friend, Sean Matisavich that would go to business meetings with me. And, you know, he's one of those people who could sell, you know, anything to anybody. He's, he's a very charismatic guy. So we kind of got in the door by selling uh, ad placements, but just like, yeah, thinking about Chris in the Enorma cast and, and Chris would just plug the zine so much. Like I never, we tried, to like give each other money, but it'd always be like you giving me $50 and me giving it back to you on PayPal. <laughs> and then sure I think eventually ever, yeah. now we just stop giving each other money. Cause, um, but you, you saw, I think you saw a uh, kindred spirit in, in me, Chris did. And so he wanted to, um, you know, support it. And so for a while it was just like, I kind of just need this outlet for people to find out about it. And I've never been social media savvy or anything either, uh, which is, is super important now. I think I've gotten a little more savvy and I'm, I'm trying to get more savvy, but yeah, just looking back 10 years at the media landscape, magazines were still super relevant. Um, and there wasn't too many podcasts. There wasn't just like 10 years to now, like the change is so profound but from from my opinion, the the zine has an advantage because it's kind of it's not a magazine, um, it's it's smaller, um, and we, you know, kind of have this base of a following that's that's continuing to grow and grow. Um, but I think, especially with climbing and rock and ice going away, I think that's really benefited me because climbers, I think, want tangible things. So I climb, I think climbers are a different audience, um, and so I think that because we're, I'm, I'm the only one really offering, um, in addition to the Alpinist and, and don't forget about California climber too. Um, everyone will chime in about that when I say I'm the last one. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just, it, it feels like I've just kind of benefited by being the last thing. And then I think the zine being different and also the way we tell stories in, in the, the people like craving storytelling, um, about real raw, like honest things that have happened in climbing in life. I think that's where we connect with readers and stuff. But um, yeah, just the changing media landscape is a crazy, crazy thing. And I guess I can only really kind of answer that in like the story of the zine. You know what I mean? Like it's just so mind blowing of how fast things are changing. And there's all these trends I'm not even aware of. You know, I just found out about that like Magnus guy on YouTube and just like watch one of his YouTube videos. Apparently he's like the biggest thing in climbing right now. I didn't even know that until... I was like talking to somebody on the phone and like, yeah, check that out. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's my kind of long winded answer of, of what I feel about print media. And and I do think there's a a difference between magazines and zines. I think magazines, 
um, other than the ones like the Mountain Gazette or the Alpinist um, that are kind of higher end that people are, are willing to pay for. I mean, the Mountain Gazette's transformation's been insane. You know, they went from a free magazine that would be there for 10 years, go away for 20 years, come back for 10 years, and it was always free. And now, I mean, their subscriptions are like um, pretty expensive for two issues a year, but they have a huge subscription base because the owner, Mike, is just really savvy at, at selling publications. So I, th I think, you know, print is not dead. I think many magazines are dying and you, you find out about more and more every day. But, um, I think especially with the climbing audience, I think there's a craving for, for tangibility and, and something you can hold and, um, get your eyes away from a computer screen. So, you know, I, I've kind of gone full circle on, on the, on these questions where it seemed at one point, you know, probably 10 years ago, insane to me that I would write, a piece and it would be edited and then put into a design file alongside pictures and then printed in a magazine in China that would then get shipped across the ocean to the United States where it would be distributed, you know, two months after I'd finished even thinking about it. And it just seemed like the worst way to convey a piece of information to someone like why were it, it, you know it was just so insane to do it that way like if you, the goal is to get people to read your ideas and thoughts and stories then you couldn't imagine a worse way to do that in in a in an era where it's possible to you know reach and touch people instantly but i have you know sort of started to turn on that and I appreciate more as more and more of our lives become, you know, digitized and online and we're looking at screens all day. The, there is something, um, really pleasurable about being able to hold an object that, and, and there's value in, and like you, you give money to someone and you get to hold something that's tangible and it feels, um, special in a way that I think is increasingly kind of fleeting. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think of, um, this new, you know, kind of revolution in being able to do something with, you know, like there's that thing about a thousand dedicated followers or whatever. Um, I, I get a lot of my stuff from like hip hop culture and, and things like that, you know, starting with like mixtapes, like scenes are kind of like mixtapes, but um, there's this artist Nipsey Hussle who had this proud to pay campaign and he, he came out with his CD for a hundred dollars and people are like, what the hell is this? He didn't, you know, he have, wasn't signed to, he didn't have like a major agreement or anything. And Jay-Z bought a thousand of them or a hundred of them for 10,000 bucks or whatever the math is. It's just like, he, he saw that move and respected it. And, you know, Nipsey Hussle sadly was killed. Um, but I think trends like that are, are an important thing to, to look at as well. So it's like, I, I agree with you. I think more and more people are going to come back to tangible things. I mean, I even see 21 year olds that they're coming full circle of like, you know, I meet more and more 21 year olds that are like off social media and like, they love things like the zine. Um, so I think there, there's a coming back, not just for like people of our age, but I think even younger people, um, that crave this thing, like people are collecting tapes now. <laughs> like we all know t that tapes are like the biggest garbage invention ever you know next to cds or whatever um but people are collecting tapes they sound way worse than cds yeah we have a yeah. tape player in our car still and uh yeah they sound terrible and like it, so noticeable that you didn't even notice when i was like a you know middle schooler and just ruining the tape by playing it over and over again they sound terrible yeah, and but now you got uh 
20 year olds who never had anything but i i you know um iphones or i i don't even know if they had ipods but they're collecting tapes because they want something tangible and and it's almost like nostalgia for something you never had so well let, let's talk a little bit about the business model because the thing is is you know it it's not it's like often blamed on this idea that you know people want to just get everything instantly and look at it online but but honestly, the, the advertising landscape changed a lot in the last 10 years as well, also related to the internet, to where you know print ads were just the value, or at least the perceived value, because it's always been, I mean, advertising is just perception, really, of what something's worth, but um, you know, went down while it was, you know, the, the, the fa Facebook and Google just took over the advertising world. Um, that killed has killed these magazines as much as a lack of desire for them out in the world, you know, because um, you always had to have both. You had to have subscribers, but you had to have that. I mean, the ad revenue was what you really needed. Mm -hmm. um, so what about that in, in terms of the evolution of the zine as a business, you know, because obviously, you know, you were you were probably like the the early zeners at Kinko's, you know, in the middle of the night making your zine and then it became something bigger than that and, you know, you were a dirtbag and now you're an adult and you you actually need, you know, something that has a steady income to it. So what about the evolution of the business part of it? Well, fun fact, my first zine was made at Kinko's. Uh, yeah. It's called Moonlight Dream <laughs> I mean, that was Tasters. part of the yeah. culture, right? <laughs> yeah. Because Kinko's were 24 hours too. So it was like there'd be the old skaters or whatever would be in there like collating their pages in the middle of the night or whatever. Yeah. So I, I had the advantage of, it was just me, you know, kind of like a lot of things in climbing now that are successful. It's, it was just, it was just me. So I wasn't, um, I, I hire a team of freelancers to do my design, my editing and my website. And I have friends like, you know, Sean Matasavage who volunteered their time. Um, so it was just me. And in the beginning, I did rely on uh, print ads and I still do for uh, a decent amount of my income. But after a while, I diversified to, you know, I started a podcast um, because everyone had to start a, everyone started a climbing podcast. So I figured I, sh I should too, but I actually, it was, it's actually been a, a good boon. So I started the podcast and then um, like doing merchandise as well, like, just started kind of diversifying was, you know, selling a lot of stickers and shirts and having the podcast. So it wasn't like as big of a deal. And in most of the companies that support the zine, like I don't charge, I, I charge less, I'm sure than, than outside or any of the other um, publications for ads. So I've been able to retain most of my print ad sponsors just because the price is so affordable. And occasionally I'll get dropped by a company that isn't doing print anymore. Um, and ideally I would love to have the zine be free of ads someday. That would be like a dream, but then that would need more support from subscribers. And, and that's why I kind of push like the keep the zine alive campaign and stuff. But with the zine, I just don't have that much competition anymore. And, and more and more people are still finding out about it. So I, I rely much more now on subscription dollars than I do than I did in the past where, um, yeah, you could just like a magazine could just rely on ad revenue for a long time. And uh, but that has that has dried up in the print space. But like you know, going back to the Mountain Gazette, I hear that they you know they have a certain amount of spots, and then they'll make companies like compete for it. You know, so the other part of this conversation too is the internet was able to do so much better with like just report. Remember like the hot flashes column in Climbing Magazine where somebody did a 13D, and then like Andrew was saying, two months later it's in a magazine. You know, like Instagram does that so much better, or YouTube or whatever. Um, 
So I think that's the other part of the magazine thing. We never did that uh, with the zine. It was just always stories. Um, Dabbled in gear reviews for a while until we realized we were kind of BSing our way through gear reviews and didn't really want to do that anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. Gear (laughs) reviews were BS, huh? (laughs) (laughs) They all are, people. They all are. I um I feel a rant uh, suddenly cooking up in inside um, that maybe I'm going to write <laughs> at some point. Um, but you just t- kind of tipped me off on an idea here, Luke, about the. I, I just had these flashbacks to the amount of feedback that I used to receive, and we used to receive at Rock and Ice about you know the magazine being full of ads and just what a bummer that was. And so people just used to like. It, it was kind of like the the lowest bar of criticism was like this magazine's full of ads and blah blah blah. People would rant about that, but it's interesting to see how we now live in this world where literally everyone is has become an advertisement for some company or something that they're doing on Instagram. Like the companies who uh, ha- have found their way to like pay people, you know, pay influencers to hawk their products and to, and to promote their brands and to promote their messages. And it's turned everyone into an ad. And I find that ironic and also just infuriating at the same time, because the critique about advertisements in, in magazines has always seemed to me to be like just one of the dumbest ones. And so you, you just kind of mentioned that you'd like to move to an ad-free model. So I was curious to hear what your reasons and motivations are for that do you have that knee-jerk response to seeing any kind of paid placement in in the pages of a magazine or like i guess where does that come from it it would just come from if the print if the company stopped doing it because i we don't have i've never had that critique that there's too many ads Um, and i and i once did the ratio that we had the highest ratio of of stories and photos to ads and we used to pitch that in meetings and stuff so the only re- in, in the companies I have are like Patagonia, Black Diamond, Osprey, Petzl, you know, just great companies um, that I've been working with for a while. And then we have some sponsors like Natives Outdoors and Access Fund, American Outbound Club, you know. So um, I would only stop doing the ads if they stop making placements, um, mm-hmm. you know, personally, just because I, I've never had too many BS ads and I've never had that critique that there's too many. I think we only have um, a, a, a small amount of of advertising in it. So, um, cause that money is, is super helpful. Um, with printing getting so fucking expensive, that's been the big crux of the last few years is my print costs have at least doubled, you know? And then sometimes mm-hmm. my printers like, and I print in the United States, but he's like, I got to get this paper five months ahead of time and, uh, with supply chain issues. So how so. are you selling ads now? I mean, do you go to the trade show? Do you reach out to, you know, who are you like, how do you do that? Uh, because yeah. I, I, I guess, I ask that because I imagine that a lot of marketing departments at these companies, if someone were to walk into their booth at the trade show and say, I've got a little magazine, do you want to buy a print ad? They'd be, they wouldn't even know what that word print ad means. Like, you know, because we do live in this landscape where marketing budgets go to, you know, so many different things, including paying all of these fucking losers on Instagram to, to sponsor their products, uh, through these deceptive posts that they're making. Um, people I'm sure who at one point in their life would have critiqued magazines for having too many advertisements in them, um, have themselves become the com- yeah, biggest Andrew, sellouts. Come on. <laughs> Calm down. All right. All right. All right. I'll save, I'll save it for evening sense. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's my, uh, I, I, I'm just curious to know, like, do you find, um, a lot of people like 
like we we don't even have budgets for print ads now like what, what are you talking about or, or is there a lot of like kind of curiosity and res- like warm reception to the idea that someone's out there making a magazine still yeah I, I need to get back on the ground and start pitching i think that maybe that climbing wall association um annual get together is, is maybe a better way now to start pitching but most of my clients did come through um outdoor retailer in this pre pandemic world you know go to outdoor retailer make a pitch um, try to get a yes because i think you can get a yes face to face with somebody um, a lot easier and um, so yeah most of my clients did come through or and and sit down uh, face to face meetings and then that that's my fear is like this person leaves a company and then the next person comes in with a different idea and um, and it's not like the greatest fear but I, i do think that could happen someday so a lot of times there's these you know, like Justin Roth, who's my contact at Patagonia. Um, I met him at when he was working for Urban Climber in 2000, whatever, seven or something, you know? So, um, but then, um, then occasionally I'll get a new, these days I'll have a, just a like kilter just reached out to me and was like, we love what you're doing. We want to just sponsor, you know? So occasionally I'll get something like that, but, um, I, I miss that OR was this central place where a lot of things went down. Um, I truly do miss that. And, um, that has probably hindered me a little bit, um, with getting new business, but I do think that, um, whatever it's called that like in indoor, the climbing wall associate, it was in Pittsburgh, um, this last week yeah, or CWA. something, um, CWA. Yeah. Uh, I do think I want to start probably going to that next year or something. Cause, um, I don't get the feeling that outdoor retailer has that synergy and, and centeredness. And I went to the big outdoor gear show last year and was, they were very low on, on climbing businesses. Um, so I, I think there's something, you know, climbers, international climbers festival is good too, but there's not a lot of like sit down meetings there. Um, so I, I want to kind of get back and try to retain or try to get some new business with going to, but it's just that face to face. If you can make a good pitch and you can connect with someone and sometimes it takes, you know, you make a connection, but then three years later it, it something happens too. So I think that like face to, you can't really, um, you know, just going back to these things that are timeless, like face-to-face connection with, with people, um, is really what got, you know, people excited about the zine and, you know, 10 years later, some of those sponsors still are, have the same people in the office or, um, are still sponsoring it. So. Yeah. And let me ask you some questions about like, um, back to this evolution thing too, you know, thing cause we, we've commiserated over the years, um, as the, the independent media in climbing kind of scene and commiserated, the lack of money or whatever, or our business acumen. Um, because I've, I've found, you know, with my thing and, and with your thing too, I mean, we're, we're sort of creative people and, and we, we sort of pulled these, these projects out of our butt one day and decided that we were going to go for it. And like the business part was probably came later for you as well as for me, like, I'm going to print this thing at Kinko's and hand it out to my friends. And then, you know, later on, it was like with me, with the podcast, same thing with the normal cast, like I'm going to make some of these and we'll see if people listen. And then, you know, the business end of it sort of came in afterwards and I'm not very good at it. And, and, um, you know, it, again, like I, I'm a, I'm sort of the creative producer in a way. And, and when you we were talking about whether you would get rid of ads, you know, and Andrew's thing with where they were getting critiqued for too many ads with me, I just, if I could get rid of that part of my job where I, I have to talk 
business and do contracts and all that sort of thing. That's the reason I would get rid of it. Um, although at this point, I think my fans would be pissed actually if I didn't have ads on. But um, you but yeah, I mean, it's, it's more yeah. like if you you know, I don't know if you do you enjoy that hustle? Do you enjoy that uh, like going out and trying to get up business? I know Sean's sort of your guy with that too. That's really helpful. But but I don't not even sort of. And so um, that's the reason I would like like to just jettison any sort of ads where I could just stay in my little studio and make my shit and people would give me money for it without me ever having to leave kind of thing, which is what we do at the run out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the big difference between me and you is I, I actually really do enjoy the business side of oh, it. Cool. Um, I sucked at it originally, but I, I actually, I really enjoy it. And, and I have actually pretty big ambitions and, and goals with um, some of like the merchandising and and growing, you know, writing books and, and doing films and stuff. So I actually, I think that's the difference between me and you is I really enjoy it. And I, I've noticed right. that over the years. So I was like, Chris, you should check out this and I could help you with this. And you're like, ah, whatever. I'm so, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Cause I'm, always, I'm like a yeah. phobic almost with it. It's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. You said you have 10 million downloads. You, you could be monetizing this thing um, a lot more than you are, or you could even hire an agency or something, Chris. So right. I think it, it really comes down to probably you just, you, you dislike it a lot more than I do. And I actually really like, I really like it. And I just love the, if you can just diversify and have different income streams, um, I think that's why the zine's been able to be, you know, kind of going full circle back to magazine versus zine. Being a one-person show, it's like kind of this modern thing. Getting a little social media savvy and having different income channels. Um, you know, I just had like the the last year I had was the best year I've had for the climbing zine and the business grew like thirty-five percent. So, well, advertising is, um, of course, only one part of making a magazine, and then there's the other half, which is the content and editorial decisions and stuff. And yeah, I'd love to hear your take on how you're running that side of the zine as well, because um, one, you know. Magazines used to serve a function and, and they were a platform for people to share ideas that they didn't have anywhere else in their life. And so, but that of course isn't true today. Everyone has their own platform. They can publish their thoughts wherever they want. And, and, and at least in climbing culture that often seems to take place on Instagram. So what is the pitch to getting writers on board and photographers on board and how do they come to you? Do you, you know, assign ideas? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. Um, I have my my writers that have you know like a Chris Schulte or something that have, have written for me and, and supported it since the beginning. And Chris is such a good writer; he'll I'll just see something that he writes, like some Schulte rant on Instagram or whatever, and then I'll publish that. Um, people send me pitches too. I'm always encourage people to send me stories. Um, about ninety five percent of what I get is um, is not super high quality writing it's like this trip report like i did this and it's like do you read the zine you know like the zine is not a it's not a trip report um style thing so it, it takes a so so most of what i get in front of me is not um something all i try to you know hit everyone back over email but as you know like writing is is a craft and it it is you know there's a lot of different ingredients to a good story. So it, it's a hunt, man, to find the five story. You know, I probably publish now 10 stories a year and, and maybe eight of them are from other writers. So I'm looking at just finding eight stories a year and it's a challenge. It really is. But I feel like every time I'll start to freak out, you know, like waking up in the middle of the night and like, oh, I don't have enough stories. I'll, I'll like the next morning, a, a beautiful story will be in my inbox, you know. But so I, I hunt and then I have... 
the typical array of, of contributors that ebbs and flows over the years, you know, people kind of have runs that um, they'll do two or three stories in a row and then, and then not do it. And then sometimes I'll just meet people at events like at mountain film or something, you know, just meet um, an incredible person and um, they'll tell you they'll write for you. And usually they don't, but just, th- just those like festival connections or, and especially with photographers and artists too, that's really helpful. So I'll also wait on a publication. You know, I think, at climbing rock and ice, you probably didn't have that luxury. Like let's wait a month. <laughs> you know, um, I've been working with, um, Ed Webster's, um, uh, wife, Lisa to republish one of his articles. And it delayed this, this, um, most recent issue by like two months, but I knew I wanted to do some sort of Ed Webster tribute. And then it just took, you know, she's obviously grieving his death, but she was very, um, supportive of wanting to get a good article. And, Jeff Akey actually recommended something that he wrote in 1977 about like the second ascent of the cruise that they got benighted on. And then, um, Vic Seilman had some photos that were high quality. And then Henry Barber was helping out with getting us some of Ed's photos. And then the American Alpine club library actually found this article in mountain magazine from 1977 and it was in a PDF and then we had to get it into a different format. So, um, I think it's a big luxury that I have is uh, I'll just, I'll wait until I, I feel like I have the standard that I want, but it's, um, it's just a, a wide variety of working with, with different people. And then, you know, something like Ed Webster, it's like, I just felt compelled to, to do, you know, some sort of tribute to, to Ed Webster, you know? Um, and that all started with Jimmy Dunn, who has become like a personal friend of mine and he just will call me and just start telling me stories. And then I just like felt compelled to, to do something, you know? for his his memory but you make it sound so easy <laughs> it's not i mean eight stories a year yeah. is I, I have to lament about this a little bit because i i guess do you worry about the 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 craft of writing dying this literary tradition and climbing dying now i mean to, to the idea that it's painful to find eight pieces of writing that are worth putting on a piece of paper every year is is such a challenge like that that to me says something that is far more concerning than, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I do worry, but then I also, I just think it's, the zine is still really small, you know? Um, Patagonia is probably a bigger, Justin Roth and I talked about this, like they're a bigger publishing house than the climbing zine is, even though I'm arguably like the number one print rock climbing publication because it's just us and California climber, you know? Um, so I think that still, um, people maybe don't know about the zine and that's why I kind of wanted to be on the run out and have obviously like just, you guys are two interesting people to have this conversation with, but just, I'm always trying to like spread the, the depth of the audience to send me stories. Um, cause I think more people probably send pitches to Patagonia than, than send to me. Um, as far as the craft of writing, um, I, I don't think it's a dying, but it is. I mean, there, there's many reasons to be concerned. Um, and Andrew, I'm sure you can relate. I know, Chris, you've done a little bit of writing, but most of writing is just like stumbling over yourself and failure and like throwing things in the trash, but like getting back the next morning and doing it, you know, over and over again um, in this effort. And I think with, especially with like this AI stuff and all this other, these other things, like are people going to have that motivation to write? Um, but then I also think what, what do I have left of my, you know, I'm going to do this, what, 15, 20, 30 more years. I got, I don't, it's not like a concern I think in my lifetime, cause I think us, 
and I, I think younger people will find that urge to write but um yeah well when i'm like ready to sell the climbing zine will that be something that like someone will want to buy and, and continue it but um, i try not to like worry about that too much and just really hone in on like i gotta get another zine out um and it, i feel like they always end up good and it, this one i just I, I got one that's at my designer right now um and I, I feel like really good about it and i was worried about it all along so i worry all the time uh, about writing stuff but it, it always it always comes together in the end it really does right that was our fourth episode of season five Um, super fun conversation with those two like i said i could have had that conversation for a couple more hours when it ended i was like oh i I could keep doing this for a while but grateful for those two for having me on the show and for letting us uh, reshare that here music from this episode is from devin dabney our digital editor and producer is chad rich and signing off from Durango, Colorado, about to hit the road to Wyoming for a bit of July. Hope to see you all up there. Peace.